0: Good morning. Today, we're going to discuss media relations. We see so many people with a media crisis every day, CNN in line from just yesterday, Subway's Jared Fogle from Inspiration to Suspicion on CNN, Ariana Grande with her statement of I Hate America. So have you ever had a need for a public relations consultant? Have you had your own crisis in communications? And if you're a private investigator, have you ever been involved in a high-profile case that you needed attention? Would you like to have more understanding how the media works? And my guest today is just the person, Kyle Niederproom. Did I do that right, Kyle? You did. Yes, okay, you did. great. Okay. Kyle, um, you're obviously a, a super media um, public relations expert, but tell us your background.
2: Well, uh, my story goes a bit way back to Watergate-era days, and I was kind of thinking back about how I got interested in journalism in the first place, and when I went to Indiana University and decided to major in journalism, it was sort of the post-Watergate era where young people my age were looking at the story that blew up where Mm. reporters, you know, literally brought a president down. Mm -hmm. So, it was kind of an exciting time for journalists and young people who were interested in the industry at the time because, I mean, that was a lot of what PIs do, frankly, right? A lot of footwork, a lot of digging through records, a lot of sourcing, a lot of connecting the dots. And so, that was kind of my introduction to journalism. That would have been back in the 70s. So, Fast forward to today, I spent probably 20 plus odd years in the newsroom working out through, you know, reporter to editor, did a lot of investigative journalism along the way, and then segued out into an ad agency to do PR and media consulting, which was a really interesting cultural change for me, because then I was on the flip side of having to pitch reporters and talk them in or out of stories or managing a crisis. So it was really interesting to be in the opposite chair, so to speak. And I remember when I was hired, the person who hired me said, you don't realize as a journalist how tough you are on people and how <laughs> tough you are on sources and how you don't accept anything as matter of fact. Uh, truth. You're always mm-hmm. demanding records. You're always insisting on a backup and a second source and a third source, and I'm like, no way. That's, I mean, that's how journalists are trained. That's how I was trained at IU, and everybody's like this. Well, lo and behold, as I took that opposite chair, uh, I discovered, hmm, not everybody is like that. Really? So a lot of journalists I discovered, unfortunately, as I shifted over, were um, lazy, Mm-hmm. they didn 't pursue records diligently they didn 't check statements they you know posted anything you gave them and or sometimes even asked you to write copy for them so that was all really uh, a stunning kind of revelation to me and so you know you can 't exactly share that with your friends who are still in the business and who are journalists but it sort of spun my head around a little bit to realize, gosh, I guess maybe he was right about that, that there are a lot of people in the industry out there who don't do things and didn't take their job quite as seriously as I did. So, um, so that was interesting, and that kind of made me think uh, quite a bit differently about the industry. So then you fast forward to today. So I left the ad agency as a vice president of PR after about five years, started my own company which I've had for about 10 years. And what's been interesting is in that evolution, it isn't just the happy news you need to push out and the announcements and, hey, look at what, you know, we've created this milestone or this company has done this or that. There is a lot of crisis communication because just about everything anymore due to social media can move so fast and fly so quickly that what once was a local story that maybe would get some statewide attention and move, you know, the dial out to Associated Press or Nationwide now can go global within a matter of, I mean, an hour to two hours. Mm-hmm. And so you had mentioned at the beginning of the conversation what happened here in Indianapolis with the subway uh, spokesman right. Jared Fogel. I mean, media showed up at his house. Right. Uh, very early in the morning, sort of, you know, 6.30 a.m.-ish in that time frame. You know, everybody's in bed. Everybody's waking up. And, you know, the federal authorities are there, state authorities were there. This was all tied to a prior arrest of his foundation director for child pornography. And I, I caught it first. Where, do, where did I catch that first? Where would you guess I caught that first?
0: Morning News, Today Show? Twitter. Twitter.
2: Found it on Twitter first because one of the first things I do when I get up, like most guilty people in my industry, is I grab the smartphone and I check in on two places before I pick up any other media source or check, that's Twitter and Facebook, then email, sort of in that order, because Twitter moves so quickly anymore that you can easily see something starting, and if it's with media, I have lists on my Twitter page. I can just go quickly to a list and then see how different media are tracking and shipping out the information. So I'm finding more and more, and I date this back to, say, the Boston Marathon bombing. Mm -hmm. I watched Twitter for the news more than I watched anything else, even breaking news on television, because... There was more being reported there. And in fact, I was watching that so intently for a while, you know, on and off while I'm doing my business and my work that I actually found a local connection for a local reporter and said, were you aware of this? Because I saw Mm -hmm. it on Twitter. And that reporter had been assigned to looking for local people in the news who were affected by that tragedy. And she was able to hook up. And find a local angle to that story. So, I mean, if you aren't on Twitter, you really should be. If You don't need to be on it and participatory, but you certainly need to be lurking and watching. And I know people in your industry, just like my industry, are always looking for where things are coming from, right? What's exactly. the source of that story? What's the source of this rumor? Right. You know, is that true information or is it false information? And, you know, you're in in an industry that does the exact same thing. So if you're not really, you don't have to be in social media. You don't have to be participatory. You don't have to be engaged in it. But you certainly have to be on it enough to monitor it and understand how it works today. And if if you aren't, uh, I would highly recommend that you do so. I find that it's a lot easier to understand it if you're in it and you're using it as opposed to just observing it. But you can mm-hmm. certainly find out a lot. You know, you and I were at the Indiana conference here together, and mm-hmm. it was interesting to hear how uh, PIs are using that in their jobs and in their industry today. And then, you know, your are just also affected. PIs are by legislation. I know you're involved in tracking legislative activity on the Hill and down to state houses, and how that suddenly becomes an issue when lawmakers decide, yeah, I don't think that needs to be public anymore. That needs to right. be private information or it needs to right. be closed up or shut down. So that's pretty important.
0: That's that's very important and what great advice. I you know, I wouldn't I I'm actually surprised. I'm, I'm that's very good advice. But let me let me go back to you just for a second. Kyle, you've received so many awards. What is the one you value most?
2: Well, actually, uh, in anticipation of the interview, because we had chatted so much about public records in Indiana when you were here, I did pull out some old clip files and some hard copy stuff, you know, that isn't digital, and looked at some of those things. And the one that I did want to share with you is way back in um, about 1999 to 2000, I was an elected president of a national journalism association that's based here in Indianapolis, and it's called the... Society of Professional Journalists, so SPJ has been around for a very long time. It started in um, Greencastle, Indiana, it was, you know, through DePaul University. It was kind of the home base there for a long time until we moved headquarters to Indy, and, you know, one of the goals of that group always, and it has lawyers as members, students as members, teachers, instructors, um, all sorts of, you know, kinds of people who are interested in public records. And uh-huh. through this, I've met a lot of private investigators, including some in Indiana who were involved in some of the same records battle. So back in 99, 2000, when I was national president, and I'd been involved in Freedom of Information Act issues through SBJ for a long time, advocating, creating, you know, good government groups here that were concerned about restricted access to records, we kind of looked around and said, look, what if we did a statewide audit and trained people and sent journalists from all over the state into public offices, all at the same time, in the same time frame, to do on-demand, in-person public records requests of, say, five or six public offices. So we got a group of editors and publishers together, and, you know, we sat around and we said, this would be great, but can we do it, and can we pull it off, and can we make this a concerted effort, and can we, end goal, publish all at the same time and see what sort of impact it has. But the focus Mm -hmm. needs to be not on journalists. It needs to be on real people who struggle with access to records every day. That Mm -hmm. could be an industry, um, you know, like journalists or like PIs, but let's try to find the real people stories. I need access to information because, or lack of access to information affected my life because. So we actually did it. And we did it with seven newspapers, and it won multiple awards. It was a finalist for a Pulitzer, although we didn't wow. win a Pulitzer. But the one I'm most proud of was a First Amendment award through the Scripps Foundation, which recognized us with that kind of accolade because they said, you know, if you're not doing work like this, this is when records shut down. And so... Mm-hmm. The series had an immediate impact. It, it was really stunning. We had a governor who had been a previous publisher in a former life, right? So he had a newspaper background. He got it. He responded to it. He created a, a by executive order an ombudsman over public records. There was a legislative study committee. And Amazing. again, the strength of that story, I think, there was threefold, and it is one of the proudest things. The things that I'm most proud of in my career is because. It had an immediate effect with legislative and executive change in the state of Indiana. It changed the culture here on public records more than anything had done in decades prior, even with lobbying of the press association. So that was dramatic. The second thing is finding real people to tell that story, and I'll share one with you that, that really affected me as a reader and as a woman, and it was a case involving police records. And there was a story about... Uh, It was in the northwest part of of Indiana. There had been a serial rapist suspected. Home invasion. All right, what's the worst fear of any woman who lives alone anywhere? It's home invasion, Mm -hmm. sexual Mm -hmm. assault, um, very violent rape cases, and they were occurring uh, enough that police were convinced and felt that they had a serial rapist operating in this area. So the newspaper, as most newspapers would do, said, you know what? As a public service, we need to let people know where these rapes are occurring, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. public records, crime records, just incident reports, which you guys get your hands on all the time and everybody looks at, and there are databases now and online, which is fantastic. Years ago, you had to pour over and get, and I remember when I worked at the police feet in Indianapolis, that incident reports were on a teletype machine. They Uh came off in a carbon copy, three-page, four-page duplicate. You had to go through them by hand. You had Uh to read them all. So, you know, overnight in the city of Indianapolis, when I was a police reporter, that would be maybe 300, 400 reports. And through your eyeballs, you had to sort of consider, wow, there's been a rash of burglaries in this city or there's been, you know, incidents here. There's something happening and it's a pattern and I need to check with homicide or burglary or vice, right? That's how you did it back then, just like the Watergate reporters did. So this particular case in northwest Indiana, the police refused to divulge the information. They said, look... This is a very sensitive investigation. We're going to close these records off as investigatory. We have an investigatory exemption in the state of Indiana, which still exists because police mm-hmm. lobby pretty hard for that,
0: mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm.
2: exemption as they probably do all over the country. Right. Sure. And so they refuse to release information. So guess what happens as a result? More women get assaulted. Uh uh-huh. More women get attacked and more women get raped. So to me, this is a pretty heinous example of the lack of disclosure where the police could have cooperated with the media and vice versa to tell a very important public safety story, still get information out that doesn't jeopardize an investigation and result in an apprehension and arrest. So eventually, an arrest is made, and this guy appeals the conviction. So... We actually looked at the appellate court records. There was no reversal on the conviction. But as we started digging through the records of this particular case, because it was one of those cases that had been documented as a records privilege case in Indiana, we found in there testimony of one of the victims. And, and this is what she said in these public documents. By the way, I say these documents were public, meaning we were able to get a hold of them and tell the story. So as a result of this home invasion rape that she suffered to to that day, and this was stated in court, that she constantly slept with the lights on. She never turned Uh, the lights uh, off in her home, and so fearful was she of the lights being off in her home that she had taken uh, tape and taped all of the lights, light switches upwards and on. so that no one could visit her home and no one could ever turn a light off accidentally or otherwise. Now, keep in mind the time frame of this is around, you know, 2000, 2001. That's a powerful story to tell, and that's a story that has real impact on real people for lack of disclosure of public records. So, you know, that's one of the stories that I'm proudest of that we spent a lot of time on and a lot of very... Uh, A lot of good energy went into those stories to find the right stories to tell. Now, subsequently, after that series was published, a lot of newspapers in other states duplicated the series or they would call us for Uh advice and say, we want to do something because you had such a great impact. So we would do tutorials. We would do you know teleconference calls. We would tell people, here's the ups, here's the downs, here's how it works. So I went back and looked at the data in this, you know, knowing we were going to chat. And one of the measures that we did, we actually went to sheriff's offices and all 92 counties, Indiana has 92 counties, and, you know, so we went into all of those elected sheriff offices and everybody made a records request and everybody was given a script to ask for the same things and try not to veer from the script so that, you know, we would get, mm-hmm. be able to document denials. Over 70% of sheriff's offices denied a very simple public records request
0: for a crime. I'm not, report. I'm not the least bit surprised. Yeah. Not the least. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure you're not because, of course, you know, as, as I've bumped into people in your profession and industry across years, you know, people don't want to share stuff with private investigators either. That's and, right. and there was one case where a reporter went into, and, of course, you know, we said, You know, people weren't using tape recorders a lot in those days, even even though it's like today, it's like I couldn't possibly take notes, it's all got to be taped, and then I shove it right out there on Twitter, so we said to people, make sure you very carefully, the minute you get out to your car or your vehicle or you leave the office, document the conversation. Right, write it down. Right. So, in one instance, we had a reporter go into a sheriff's office, and and a little bit of give and take and back and forth, and you know they, were, they finally called the sheriff out to deal with the reporter, and I think he said something like, "How do I know you're not an axe murderer?" <laughs> So, you know, meaning, how do I know you're not going to use this information on a crime report in a nefarious way? And we even advised people, we said, look, you know, reporters dress a little schleppy, right? So they're they're in (laughs) jeans and sometimes, you know, dress for the day's work. So we said, don't dress up, but don't dress down. Dress you would as your regular person in your normal course of business activity, but dress in your regular business attire so that you don't go in raising flags and people thinking, hmm, who is this person requesting? Because in some records... Requests also across the country, they demand that you write your intent for use of the records. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I would never do as a reporter. And I always thought that because it, it isn't really part of our records law here, but we knew that would come up. So, you know, it was interesting to see such a dramatic reaction to that series. I can't necessarily say since then there's been as much dramatic movement in Indiana, in my own state, but, of course, because of that, there was a pretty quick uptick. And so even today, still there exists by a governor's appointment, a public access counselor, and in, in that person is usually a trained attorney, acts as an ombudsman, and gives anyone who requests it advice, either in writing or either in a formal way or an informal way as to is their records request or meetings denial legit and did somebody meet the legal requirements of law or not. So that's that's still around today, and I'm still very oh, proud of wow. that.
0: And you should be. You absolutely should be. That's a fabulous story. Kyle, we need to take a break. And, folks, we have so much more to talk about. Back in a couple minutes.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com C-A-L-I You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler.
0: Media relations expert Kyle Niederprum is talking about Uh, with us today about crisis in communications, the media crisis, what happens when something comes out that isn't necessarily attractive. So um, Kyle, what are the common missteps people make regarding responding to media when it comes out and it's not necessarily a good thing and it talks about you?
2: Well, there's there's a couple and we talk about these in Indiana when you're visiting and I, I would say based on the onslaught of social media, the biggest thing right now is failing to respond in a timely fashion. And even um, you know, the other day when the raid was occurring on Jared Fogel's house, one thing I was kind of watching and monitoring for is like, when is Subway going to say something? When Mm -hmm. is anyone going to say something? When are they going to have a comment for the media? Because when you have live trucks parked out in front of a residential house and, you know, news in the morning now here runs from about 4 o'clock in the morning to 10, 11 o'clock, that's a lot of time to fill. And that's a lot of repetition, and that's a lot of repetition with negative content. So it's super critical that people get something and get it to the media that are doing the reporting of origin. And when I say reporting of origin, that means the city where it's happening, the location where it's occurring, and this is where people falter as well because they don't have their ducks in a row and they don't have their media lists that are current and they're scrambling to get all that stuff together. So let's say that takes an hour. And let's say even beyond that you have to get a statement approved By a party of how many people, right? Uh Uh So, you know, the other very common mistake we see a lot in crisis communications is people have a very large review team, and it clunks things down because everybody wants to play editor, and so they want to play with the words. And, you know, you have to trust people who are in the industry, out of the industry, and have this background and have the relationships to get that statement out and to get it out Pronto, and to get it to the right people. So, you know, that's probably one of the biggest. I think the other is that when these crisis comments are put out, I mean, you know, crisis communication initially, and for that first review probably isn't a lot of rocket science. I mean, there's there are certain things you want to say always. If an investigation is underway and you don't know anything about it, you always want to say you're cooperating with authorities, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If right. something is said and you need to pull it back, I think you had mentioned the um, donut licking and I hate America mm-hmm. incident, you know, so when celebrities say dumb things, they need to apologize and they need to apologize immediately and they don't need to apologize and think about it for half a day before they come back with an apology. There's always a reason for saying something stupid, and you can try to explain it away, but uh, it doesn't always work, which is why timeliness always works in your favor. And then another one that we see a lot is um, ego, I think a lot Mm. of times when you deal with egos at any level, so let's say it's a celebrity, let's say it's a corporate CEO, you know, somebody who, you know, I know everything, right? I'm out there, I deal with people, I know everything to say and not to say. You know, the common response to that is, well, if you did, you wouldn't be in this pickle to start with. So you need to calm down a little bit and you need to listen to some advice right now and get this thing shut down and, and move. So failure to respond in a timely fashion, your inability to execute it for all your audiences, let's say that's your members, maybe it's a membership association, maybe it's your clients and customers, for a celebrity it's your fans. You know, for a CEO it's whoever buys your services and that can include, you know, donors really uh-huh. important people who pay attention. So it's also kind of interesting to watch Donald Trump go through what he's going through now. No kidding. Uh, no based kidding. on statements. Because, you know, the consequences are severe. Yeah. You know, if you, if you are associated or affiliated with something negative that people take great offense to, whether you meant it or not, uh, it's always best, and politicians generally do this fairly well, many, unless ego is involved, you apologize, You move off the dime, and you get to the next level. The longer you wait to apologize, the longer you wait to admit error, the longer you stick to your guns when the whole world is starting to rotate virally against you and classify you in a whole different category as idiot when before you used to be great, (laughs) then you need to really think about that when it affects your pocketbook, and it's clearly affecting Donald Trump's pocketbook pretty severely.
0: Pretty severely. He's losing yeah. all his support in, as far as um, income support. He's losing right. that kind so of endorsement. so for athletes it and, can be sponsors,
2: right. for celebrities yeah. it sponsors, I mean, even sports people. I mean, you know, a lot of people have kind of gotten out of that whole sports sponsorship arena because an individual that represents a brand... It's still a person. It's still an individual. And, you know, they have personal issues. They have personal opinions. They have personal biases. They have personal problems. And you can only vet people so much, just like you can vet politicians so much or politician staff. And yeah. sooner or later, people are people and things happen. And you just need to say, I didn't mean it or if I, you know, I didn't say it the right way. Or, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I've generally found that the longer you sit on it, the worse it becomes. Because more people have at it.
0: Yeah, and, and unfortunately the missteps make more news. It just adds to the news story. On and on and on. I mean
2: it does. It's like, you know, like repeats yeah. like a bad burrito. So you know the <laughs> the problem with the other the other thing about online and digital content, you know, this is why I asked about your show and if you're archived and how long and you know, you never know when something you say, even in this interview, maybe five years from now, somebody will go back and say, Well, you know, this happened to Kyle but five years ago she said X, Y, and Z mm-hmm. and then you like, Mm -hmm. well, five years ago was right. Things were different five years ago, but you're still held accountable for everything you say. The other thing that's super important in terms of digital content is, uh, and we have clients who really get nervous about this, and that's insisting that a correction be made when there's a factual error. So there's a big difference between a factual error and, um, say, context, a contextual error. So... A factual error would be saying you spent a million dollars on, you know, this real estate when really you only spent one hundred fifty thousand. Big difference, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Contextually, what a lot of people complain about and clients are: well, my competitor was quoted more in this article than I was, and I don't like it. And you can't really fix that, and you can't really change that. And even if you complain about it, it's not going to really have much effect. So, you know, the factual errors, however, uh, and I'll tell you one that happens quite a bit, very often anymore, is when people are in litigation, uh, initially uh, an article will go out and everybody will repeat uh, the allegations in a lawsuit. Uh But let's say six months go by and a motion to dismiss has been filed, and let's say the majority of the counts in the lawsuit get dismissed. But let's say a month later, a reporter revisiting the story still punches out all the allegations. But because they don't know and they're not local or they're not tracking and they're just regurgitating online content, they never point out that the majority of the counts were dismissed. Mm -hmm. Or worse, I've seen this one happen where litigation has gone up on appeal. Nobody bothers to check the status of the litigation because it's too easy to cut and paste digital content, regurgitate it, recycle it. And the whole case may have been completely reversed on appeal, Mm -hmm. which means you may have won or you may have lost. And either way, there's a story to be told, particularly if it's good news for your client, but people are hesitant to talk about it. So, you know, you have to kind of own your identity and reputation online. I I think the reason people are fearful of raising corrections is, is twofold. One, if they have a relationship with the existing reporter they're afraid they're going to make the reporter mad. And this is kind of nonsense because any good reporter worth his or her salt will immediately apologize for an error and correct it, both online and in print. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have found that reporters who are not worth their salt um, don't. And then they come up with a myriad of excuses. My favorite one is, let me talk to my editor. And then you (laughs) wait and you go back and you say, well, what's the status? And they go, well... Uh, my editor said no. Now, people tend to, at that point, turn and run away. At that point is when I would say, who's your editor, and let me talk to your editor.
0: Well, you know, the other thing that happens, Sorry? I was going to say, the other thing that happens on that is that maybe there is a retraction, but it's on the back page where the original article is on the front page.
2: Right, and so, you know, that's very common. I mean, the history of of where... um, errors are published is, is, and this is the logic of media well they 're always published in the same place in, in print on like inside of page a one and they 're all clustered together uh, now digitally what 's interesting is how people correct online right so uh-huh. we 'll give you another sort of thing to watch for online in an online copy. Reporters can correct online copy almost instantly the minute you get it in front of them, right, because they have access to do so or they have access to someone else who can do so. Uh On print, it's the next day. So a lot of times um, reporters will not acknowledge an error that they made online. They'll simply correct the online copy. So you don't see it. However, larger publications, I think this is the policy of the New York Times and some bigger, you know, more national, global publications, they will mention that they corrected the copy online and say a previous version of the story indicated such and such. We've corrected this virgin, version now to say this. Mm-hmm. And that at least gives you the trail to indicate that there was copy that had to be corrected. Is one preferred over the other for a reader? Mm, I don't know. Um, I think so. I, mean, I, would, have, I would be.
0: Yeah, it would be preferable to me to see that.
2: Yeah, as a reader. Uh-huh. So I would say probably clients would prefer to see the copy's been corrected as well. So you know that some error of fact has been made and an effort was made to switch it back. Or, if, or for example, this. This is what we're all guilty of as digital readers. You can read a story today, and then you can go back and read the same story tomorrow, and you're like, well, that's not how I remembered that story, and here's uh-huh. why. So this is what newspapers do online and digitally, and most media outlets do this, and and even, uh, say, Huffington Post, which doesn't have a print version. This is just digital practice anymore. You will see things corrected and and changed and tweaked. So let's say the day before you read a pretty nasty headline in an article, and you remember it because it was so nasty or so vivid. The next day you go online, and it's different. Mm -hmm. So as... As digital readers come and go, and the average read is pretty short anymore, editors and copy editors and reporters are told to go in and tweak their copy to get a better read. So if your copy is low-performing on the digital side, this is where the big analytics come in, you're told to change it. Hmm. So if you change it, what are you going to have to do? Well, if if your story is a bomb, you're going to make the headline more provocative. Exactly. Uh, I had a reporter tell me recently that one of the things he found interesting in his stories was that people stopped reading in his copy when they came to quotes, meaning, what did Francie say? And Francie's quote is there, but, oh gosh, for some reason, whatever reason, they stopped reading to hear what you said at that particular juncture. Well, mm-hmm. guess what happens? They take On it On the tweak, the quote comes out. Yeah. The story is abbreviated. The story is shortened. And, of course, we all have short attention spans anymore. So the lengthier stories can get shortened. Digital versions of articles are different than print versions, which clients are sometimes unaware of. So you have to track the, the print and the digital. And then also advertising is different in digital and in print. So it, let's say you're tracking what a competitor is doing. That may show up completely different in a print ad than it would in a digital ad. So you really have to be constantly aware of all products that a media outlet publishes, whether that be an e-newsletter that goes out daily or twice a day, as my major metro paper does. You have to look at an online story not once, but maybe multiple times throughout the day, and also now reader comments underneath, because sometimes people spread malicious information there intentionally, right? Right. Right. Then you have to see where it's getting tweeted and shared in social media. So it does become a pretty exhausting job, and I have seen a lot of people kind of just simply throw in the towel, I don't care. Uh, I've seen a lot of people shut down when they need to make corrections and don't venture into that territory. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is a lot of people really don't want to have an honest conversation with a reporter. And so the the give and take back and forth on email uh, can get a little short, it can get a little snarky and it can be misread pretty Mm -hmm. easily because you're afraid to pick up the phone and have a conversation and say, look, just tell me What's the scope of your story? Who else are you talking to? When is it going to run or where will it be published? Just so I know. And do I need to gather any more information for you to make sure that you have everything you need from us that reflects, you know, where we are today or to be accurate? I mean, there's no journalist on the face of the planet, I don't think even today in the digital world, who would say, I don't want to be accurate. And that, to me, is always where you can bring a conversation back to where it needs mm-hmm. to be with breaking mm-hmm. news is, can we be accurate? Let us get you accurate information. We're sure you want to be accurate, right?
0: Well, and that's the value that you provide, Kyle, because you're not emotionally vested. Uh, you don't have all of those uh, obstacles and hang-ups that uh, an individual who is a, maybe a target in a, in a media release would have in talking to a reporter.
2: That's true. And, you know, and so, Francie, I know it also in your industry, I mean, you deal with people on the verge of all sorts of emotional crises yep. and just terrible, tragic things happening in their lives. And so, you know, some of that does require a lot of patience and some hand-holding and some, you know, almost like you're a therapist, your grandma and you're the person who's trying to help control the message. So there is there is some time that needs to be built in for that, but it is good to have, I think, a neutral observer, a third party, and someone who can just say, This is the way this is gonna roll. I mean, I, I, I once had a state official say to me, Will you look over this story and tell me what you think? And what it was was a story that was, you know, damning about that particular political office. It had some what I felt was insider information. So I read it, and I said, I'm going to tell you two things. This story is either from a current employee leaked to a reporter or a disgruntled former employee. Mm-hmm. And so they said, that's, that's actually right. How did you know that? I said, you can just tell the way the story is constructed <laughs> and the, yeah. way this, the way the reporter dealt with the source of the information. So I do think it is valuable, and sometimes you know this with public records as well. You learn how to read between the lines a little bit. hmm and you learn how to connect the dots off the things that don't appear publicly. And that means sometimes, I mean, I will delve into who a reporter is connected to, who are they following on Twitter, who's on their lists, you know, what are they saying on LinkedIn, what are they preparing. I mean, just as much as reporters today now go look at, social media sources and reach out and try to find people on Facebook and, and through social media means, I mean, that's what people do on the other side as well because you want to know where the influencers are, where the detractors are, where the critics are, and, and who's being fair about that and who's not. And this is particularly true of advocacy campaigns that can go off the charts really quickly when groups are either really for something or really against something. Nine times out of ten, people are paid to deliver those messages, and, and I remember even talking to my nephew recently about Yelp, and he said, you know, I look at Yelp all the time, and I I, I really get good feedback uh-huh. on where to go to eat inside. So you realize, of course, that people can be paid who post on Yelp, right?" and he right. said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, because restaurants <laughs> give them free coupons, or they have events, or, you know, they invite people in and say, Will you share your experience, and of course, If you are paying someone or giving them free coupons or free dinner, they're not going to want to be negative about, you know, this gracious invite they have from, you know, a restaurant or some place. They're going to want to say, you know, at least the basics or something sort of nice. And so so my my nephew's face just fell. And I said, you know, Chris, people have motives all the time who are online, and sometimes people are paid to express those opinions online.
0: For sure. Uh Kyle, we need to take another break. And that was Kyle Neater Proem. I'm doing this right, right? Yes, and yes. Uh, with Kyle Communications, we'll be right back.
1: C-A-L-I. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler.
0: Today's topic is about targeting communications in crisis, and I have with me, and I'm so delighted to have media and public relations expert Kyle from Kyle um, Kyle Communications as my guest. And Kyle, so your recommendation is whenever there's a crisis, you should always respond. Is that right?
2: In most instances, the, the percentage is there for you to say something because there's just too much pressure on you to remain silent. And... Um, you know, we created, <clears throat> we've created crisis plans for national associations, for state agencies, for other groups. And, you know, once you know the content, you can even come up with sort of a standard list of, in the event of this thing happening, how do I start the conversation? In the event of this thing happening, what's a placeholder crisis comp statement? And, you know, once you know everything they deal with, there's probably 20 about 20 scenarios for any agency, organization, association, membership group, you name it, where you can say these things happen or these are the complaints we get, how do I deal with it? And there Mm -hmm. should be often a standard reply. Just like an apology should be pretty standard when people kind of goof up, there are standard replies to make. Now, does it get more complicated as, say, an investigation goes on or as a lawsuit is filed? Yeah, but of course. And, of course, the content and the context changes, so you do need to be uh, I guess for lack of a better description, light on your feet and coming up with that. That's Mm -hmm. where you cannot sit around wringing your hands, having 15 people edit things, having something come back that's just so awful, and believe me, I have friends who are attorneys, but I really see things get super complicated with litigation when a simple statement can suffice and lawyers just want to get in and wordsmith it and shouldn't. So, you know, even when we're involved in a crisis, I I like to stay in my lane. I like lawyers to stay in their lane. I like lobbyists Mm -hmm. to stay in their lane because I think Mm -hmm. you can all have very meaningful conversations together and that input's important and it's critical, but then you need to let the person take the lead. I would never jump in on litigation and tell a lawyer, (laughs) right, how to handle a lawsuit. I wouldn't expect the lawyer to tell me how to handle PR and media. So a couple things we had talked about on the break are sort of a do's and don'ts list, but I did want to throw some numbers out there because these change so constantly. I mean, the numbers are big. So, you know, if you look at LinkedIn, which we had talked about at the start of the call, a lot of professionals are on LinkedIn, and LinkedIn numbers are kind of moving. Uh You will see particularly this is where people want to be for business leads. So now it's like more than 300 million people are on LinkedIn. And if that's where you want to be for your business, it's a good place to be and promote your content. So Uh just having said that, so do's and don'ts, don'ts for media lists. And this is, again, not a lot of rocket science, but I think when people get so emotional and so wrapped up in the moment and the things that are happening to them, they forget and they panic and they don't do these things and they don't do these things in a logical order. So, you know, the big one is when there is a crisis, a lot of people just don't reply. Right. So we do say if a media call or an email comes your way It's not a particularly good idea to dodge it, ignore it, and not reply at all because you're going to get a no comment or we never heard from or they didn't get Uh back to us. Uh So, again, that's where those standard responses can come in pretty handy. And those can be set knowing on the kinds of problems that you run into in a day-to-day basis in your business or what you do. Also, a lot of people make a mistake of saying, well, let's put this guy out front because he's always great at a meeting. Well, just because, you know, John is great at a meeting, and he tells good jokes, and he's affable and personable, he could wilt on TV and on mm-hmm. camera, so we do a lot of media training where we'll get a group together, and which is always interesting because we say to people, put on a piece of paper, throw it in the pot, and tell us who do you think is going to be the best person at the end of this session. And Nine times out of ten, they pick the person who's friendly, who's affable, has a great personality, tells a lot of jokes, you know, that everybody knows, and then they put it in a pot. So then what happens at the end of two to four hours of training and everyone's group critiquing and watching people kind of respond and change out their responses, it's generally not that person it's usually somebody completely different. So you have to sort of in your head know that the person who's great in a meeting isn't always going to be the person who's great on camera and vice versa. It can happen, but you just need to have those people ready to go in the event of I need someone on camera. And a lot of times people don't have that person at all. So they tend to stick to a written script, written statements. They don't want to go on camera. They don't want to see that video repeat and repeat and repeat especially if they don't have somebody trained to understand how to do that interview. Understandable if
0: you don't. Are you saying, Kyle, that you shouldn't have a written script for something like that?
2: No, I think you should, and I think you train for it, and you have crisis communication drills. I don't think anything you should do off the cuff, but one of the things I think is helpful of having uh, a person who's been in media as your crisis communications consultant is you know what the questions are going to be. Uh And you can always say this is exactly what they're going to ask next. This is the next story that's going to happen. This is the third story that's going to happen. This is the fourth story that's going to happen. I mean, you can can almost predict with regularity these are the next steps, the second-day story, the third-day story. People who run a business every day don't think like that. People who come out of media do. So, yes, we do recommend very highly that if you have a crisis communication plan, and you go, great, it's done. I never have to worry about it again. And I put it on the shelf, and it gets all dusty. And then two years from now, social media has changed dramatically. <laughs> there are going to be 15 new platforms out there you know nothing about. <laughs> you pull that thing off the shelf, and you go, uh-oh, guess what? We're not prepared. Because yeah. everybody thinks when they make that plan, it's done. They put it on the shelf, and it goes away. That's a very bad assumption to make. Um, We'd also talked about uh, corrections online. One of the things I also recommend to people is when you start looking at online copies, start making screen captures, save it, date it, and time it. So if you know that story is blowing up, and if they say this story will be updated, which is a, a little tagline they put at the bottom of breaking news stories a lot, you can go back. And let's say you do need to talk to your lawyer later because corrections haven't been made or there's been something really bad happen in the reporting of an article, and let's say that's rare, then you have a record of what was taken along the way. So the story at noon was accurate, but say the story at 1.30 wasn't. That's important to know. And if you've kept kind of screen captures along the way, you have a track record, um, I even tell people that for comment threads, say Reddit, you know, where you have a lot of community comment mm-hmm. and items going back and forth. People mis- misrepresent who they are on Reddit all the time, and if you track back and find out who they are, sometimes you find intent, and, and sometimes it can be malicious. Very. So that's important to do. Um, but again, who's going to do that for you? You know, do you have a team in place? Right. Do you have a point person Is the point person who's tracking everything online part of your social media team? What if you don't even have a social media team? So that's why the plan is good to have because the plan is also going to pinpoint I have deficiencies in the way we communicate to the outside world and we need to fix them. And it it helps. It really helps. And I have seen people take their plans and use them to the T and have managed to come out really well on the other side. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm sorry, go ahead. <clears throat> the don't list I was going to mention, sorry for coughing here a little bit. Yeah, Um okay. You know, you shouldn't re- assume every reporter has an angle. I mean, I I certainly believe reporters... Uh, do take on a story and sometimes will wring that story dry all the way to the end of everything, and that means litigation, indictment, um, follow up. Some don't. I mean, anymore the demands are so high and heavy on reporters, it's really almost the next story, the next story. It almost behooves you to stay in touch with the story if things change and go your way. It is kind of responsibility for you to get back to that first reporter who wrote a damning story and say, hey, we won that case, or hey, we were absolved of this, or hey, you know, this regulatory group took action, but, you know, we came out of it and we resolved it and here's how. Good because advice. if you don't tell them, how are they going to know? Right. Right. So that's really important. Uh, I'm a big believer in not going off the record and not going on background and not being that because... Um, you know, it just—it's just hard to keep track of that anymore. I, I used to uh, do interviews a lot with the state agency head years ago, and he would, about every every five minutes into the conversation, say, "Well, look, off the record." And then mm-hmm. I would have to say to him, "Are you back on the record now?" So, you know, it just at a point, and after a couple of these, I just said, "I'm not—I'm not, I'm not going to go off the record with you anymore because basically, you're telling me things that I don't see what the damage is to saying them on the record." I well, think not only that got into, Kyle.
0: Mm -hmm. I don't think you can trust that it's going to be off the record, even if you say it's off the record. You can't trust that.
2: I agree. And I think it's also difficult, based on the digital demands of getting stories and tweets out there first, to expect that any human can keep up with that. And even with a tape recorder and even things like that, it's just too easy to slip. So I'm totally with you on that. Um, also on jargon it's really bad. Everybody's in their own industry, everybody drops down to acronyms and terms that people don't understand. You know, the more common you can talk to a person when we train people and we go through media training, we say if you can't explain it like you're talking to your grandma, it's not uh-huh. worth talking about. If you wanna pretend you're really smart and high and mighty and up here and you're, you know, talking down to a person, it's it's totally going to come off that way and you need to reel it back in. If you don't know how to translate your industry, if you don't know how to translate your content, we teach people how to do that as well. And then there's always the worst ones. You know, if you're terribly rude to a reporter, if you're late, if you don't show up, if you, like, try to escape in some way when you know the TV cameras are out front and they suddenly circle back behind the building and catch you running out the back door, always a bad shot. Um, but, you know, that's a great TV gotcha shot. So, you know, some things you can control in this universe, some things you mm-hmm. can't. And I mm-hmm. say if you're best prepared for a crisis, if you at least think about it before it happens to you. And then the other thing you always hear from clients who call you after a crisis is, well, I learned a lot from this. And I go, and you're going to learn a lot from the next one.
0: <laughs> really? It's true. Okay. All right. That's great. Uh, Kyle, we have just two minutes left. Um, I know you have uh, some key messages that are you think are, are really important uh, that that should matter to clients. Could you just uh, relate those for us? Because I think those would be helpful for our listeners.
2: Well, I do think there are some things that you just always need to keep in mind. And, and one is that repetition makes your point heard. I think the more you say what you need to say over and over again, the better off you are. You don't need to deviate from your script. You don't need to be drawn into a leading question. And you don't need to always reply to a reporter who demands and insists things on their terms or else. I, I think you can easily control your own destiny. It's harder and harder in today's digital age, but, you know, you it's your company, it's your name, it's your reputation, it's your livelihood, it's your profile. You just have to stay on top of it. And, and you know, reporters say, and I believe this is true too, if you're honest, if you're accurate, and if you're timely, even in a crisis, you will always prevail
0: in the end. Great. Okay, that's perfect. Kyle, we're at the end of the show. Thanks for joining the show and for your, oh my gosh, for your sage advice and your observations. And uh, thank you to our loyal sponsors, PI Magazine and IRB Search. So tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening.
1: You've been listening to PI's Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler.